Father God, we thank you for Sister Sharon, your call upon her life, your grace, your blessings to her, and the many years that she has labored for you. Um, we pray now, Lord, that you will guide her, you will enable her, and you will strengthen her as uh, she shares with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Good morning, church. Wow. It's a bit of a nervous thing, you know? Never been on live stream before. Uh, you know, all these years, right? You want to be on camera, and then you don't expect a situation like this to find you there. But yeah, um, you know, I just want to thank the worship team this morning for the very wonderful time of um, worship. And um, I'm very much blessed by the songs that we sang this morning. Especially, you know, by the chorus of one of the songs that says, Yes, to leave everything behind. Yes, to forsake every want and right. Yes, to live out with some, some of your desires. I say yes. You know, as believers in Christ, you know, a lot of us, or most of us here, when we begin our Christian journey, we say yes to God when we receive the gift of salvation um, that Jesus has purchased for us on the cross, when we said yes to Him. And as new believers, you know, we have often been told this particular verse, right? It's um, something that we always share with people. Say that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, and behold, the new has come. But, you know, we, if we go beyond this verse, and we continue to read what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 18, the verse continues to say, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Wow. Ministry of reconciliation. What a, what a wonderful privilege, you know, to be called Christ followers, to receive first the gift um, and then to be able to share this gift with other people. You know, we are given the gift of the ministry of reconciliation. And when I was 17 years old, as a young adult, um, I rededicated my life to Christ because I grew up basically in church and all of my life, you know, I had mental assent, but I really didn't have a heart relationship with the Lord. And it was only at the age of 17 that I met uh, the Lord very personally. And um, I was very much challenged by a few quotations um, that really challenged my life tremendously. And I'd like to share these quotations with you. One of them is uh, somebody that's very familiar, I think, to all of us here. Uh, Jim Elliott once said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And we all know what happened to Jim Elliott. He went on to the Orca Indians, and before he could really formally begin his life as a missionary, he was martyred for the sake of the gospel. And, um, and then there was another of um, a quotation that was my personal favorite. And this is C.T. Studd. You know, I think Wayne and Mary would find him very familiar because he is the founder of WEC International, a huge mission organization that sends many missionaries to different parts of the world. If you want to know about that organization, join the talk today. <laughs> And uh, he said this, he said, only one life will soon be passed. What's done for Christ will last. And when we look um, into this quotations as a young adult, I was very, very challenged. You know, I asked myself, you know, what will I give my life for to gain what I cannot lose? I wanted my life to come for Jesus. I, and it was during the, my young adult phase that I heard a testimony from a missionary 
who share their experiences uh, and life in the field. And I was tremendously moved. And so I said, yes, Lord. God, I'm willing to give my life to you for you to use as you please. And that prayer started me on an interesting, exciting journey in the, with the Lord for missions. Um, at that time, you know, I still had not come to BBH yet. I was going, I grew up in another church, in the Church of Singapore. And I joined many mission trips, you know, I went to Malaysia, I went to a couple of places. And, um, but my long trip was when I was in the university. I went on one mission trip um, to, yeah, to a place. <laughs> and God used that trip to teach me many lessons that showed me that actually, you know, um, church, he, God is more interested in our character than what we can do for Him. And after I graduated from university, it took me another five years where I had to be trained as a secondary school teacher and then complete my bond with the government. You know, interestingly, in this journey, before my acceptance for secondary school training, I was uh, specifically told by the Ministry of Education that I can only be qualified as a primary school teacher because my degree at that time was not sufficient for secondary school training. And so I was very disappointed because honestly, I was really scared of young crying kids and all the noise. And it's like, as extroverted as I am, you know, I, I think I wasn't able to cope with the noise. And amazingly, uh, I submitted my application for primary school teacher, but you know what? God showed up and I was given a secondary school interview, even though they told me that I didn't qualify. I mean, how did that happen, right? So, and during this period, as a secondary school teacher, I would use my school holidays and to go on various trips to explore God's purpose for me in missions. And finally, in 2001, I, I resigned from my position as a secondary school teacher. And then it took me another three years, in 2004, before God brought along um, PBH as a big family to reveal His purpose for me in missions. In 2004, that was how I came to PBH as a Bible school intern, and I was assigned to the Chinese ministry. It was only after I finished Bible school and served as a full-time staff with the Chinese Ministry Church in PPH that I was sent to the field in 2008. But some of you, I do not know if you recall, when I first came at that time, I lost my voice for three months. I couldn't speak. And I thought I was, that's it, you know? I, I love to sing and I love to talk and that was it. But the Lord preserved my voice and... Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm still talking for <laughs> and still singing. Praise God! No to God be the glory. Now I'd like to show you this video clip. I hope it works. It's a very short one. Yeah, so this was, um, what you saw there was a part of my time on the field with a very special minority, minority group um, where I lived and worked among this minority group for almost seven years. And the Lord very interestingly, as you can see there, placed me with very young kids. Remember I was telling you about young crying children. And uh, yeah, I was so previously, well, so reluctant to work with them, but God has a sense of humor. And uh, many years down the road, he used this to shape me and mold me 
giving me an opportunity to train me in perseverance, you know, and patience. And so, as a missionary on the field, right, you go through all kinds of exciting, challenging moments, you cry, you laugh, you go through all kinds of situations that you don't expect. And um, if you remember, before I left the field, I actually had a very bad back. And people will wonder, is this girl ever going to survive? You know, she's quite sickly, and you know, is she ever going to make it? But um, so thankfully, by God's divine grace, for the seven years when I was there, my back was still intact and in good shape. And I really thank God for those moments that He has been with me. And in despite of all these moments, you know, church, um, you know, you go through these times. But I would very, very truthfully say, there are not always times when you say yes to God. You know, there are always times when you say, God, are you sure? Are you doing this? I mean, why, why is this happening to you, right? And I do not know about you, but as we go through transitions, as we go through life situations, I'm sure many of us have been a place where we ask God different questions, you know, and we don't always say yes to God. And 2014 was one of those moments where it was a very difficult yes moment because um, I had to return from the field because of circumstantial challenges. And um, yeah, it wasn't a yes moment for me because coming home was more difficult than going to the field. I was very reluctant to leave behind my friends, my ministry, and, but after talking with Sukhavai um, and the leaders of my organization, the church, we all felt in a sense that it was time for me to come home for a season. And at that time, you know, I, I said, yes, I will come home. And you know, church, in 2017, after I came home, my father, who was not, uh, who was without all this well, suddenly had a turn of health, and he was called home to be with the Lord in 2015, in November. So when I look at all these situations, I have a good one and a half years upon my return from the field with my dad. And who would know, right? Only God knows. So when I look at all this, you know, I wonder, would I ever go back again? Would I ever return to active field service? And who knows? 2017, um, there was an opportunity for us, for me, to return to active field service only in a different capacity. This time to be based in Singapore and return home to and return actually back to the field as a trainer to put together a curriculum to train and mentor locals in the field for cross-cultural work so that they can in turn be sent to reach their own minority people and beyond their, uh, beyond their own culture. Was this something I had in mind when I started? No, not, not at all. I mean, I could never have imagined that God put together my training as a teacher, my time on the field, so that I can be doing what is needed for this season, right? This is something that only God can do. So I'm very thankful you know, for this ministry as I see the hand of God how he reigns in different situations and order the seasons. His timing can never be more perfect. You know, this time the church that we are working with is going through a very, very difficult moment. You know, persecution, sickness of the Wuhan virus and challenges. But yet, recently in one of my phone calls with them, I, I hear encouraging reports of growth, of revival, you know, of people not stopping to eat. And it's exactly like the days of the early church when scattering resulted in growth, closer dependence upon the Lord, purity of faith, and a lot of prayer in what it seems, what is difficult. Our God reigns, He rules, He's in control. He calls His people to look to Him with hope, with trust, 
to walk in joy, in perseverance, and faith. And this leads me to say, you know, some of you may have read the bulletin that I have this impending surgery that's going to come up. Um, and uh, yeah, that happened because some time ago, um, I went to the doctor uh, in January, in December actually, and got a medical appointment scheduled in January. And that appointment turned out to be quite a curveball because the diagnosis came back after Chinese New Year on the 29th to say that uh, I have been diagnosed with a pre-cancer stage seven. So uh, this is one of those moments when life throws you a curveball and then you wonder, where is all this coming from? But you know, Church, if not for the fact that um, I have to have a medical appointment schedule, I would have been stuck in, in a big land somewhere and I would never have been able to return it. And you know, after that, there was all this outbreak of coronavirus. You know, God's hand sometimes moves in some ways that we, we don't know, we don't understand, but He is there. You know, and during this time, I want to I want to say that I can testify that um, it is by the strength of God's word alone that we find strength in what seems like bad news. You know, brothers and sisters, um, our journey as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ calls us to follow Him in sunshine, in rain, in storm, in the wind, and you know, in this path, I saw a tiny little glimpse of what our Lord Jesus took for us on Calvary. You know, he went through the cross for us to carry the suffering and the pain. But do not forget, beyond the cross, there was the resurrection. Beyond the cross, there was victory. You know, God stepped into our time zone through Christ, facing what we have to face, face death and overcame it. And that resurrection, that the emblem that we took this morning, shows us that God sent his son to die for a broken and sinful world so that you know his love for us called him to drastic action. The road to Calvary was lifted up in Christ very practically on earth and very powerfully. And we do not, it's not just a mental knowledge, right? Christ came to make God known, it took him everything. And in the same way, you know, um, are we prepared as his followers to give everything that we have and so that people can see the message of the gospel carried through us as his messengers. And I'm still learning, I'm still experiencing what it means um, to be on this journey, to experience God's amazing comfort, his peace, and to be his messenger. And in this moment, when we have all this news around us and all this uncertainty, I want to say we take comfort in Jesus as our good shepherd who has gone before us. When we are surrounded by what seems by unpleasant or uncertain situation, we want to hold on to two, we want, I want to encourage us to hold on to God's word. It's, um, it says there, you know, in um, Psalm 23 verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18 says, We do not lose heart. Outwardly we are wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. A light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. For we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. To the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. So church, let us run this race together as a great cloud of witnesses with 
perseverance that is set before us because we have a great high priest that uh, is with us and is holding us. And so with this, I want to hand over to Deacon Yosei Inc. to continue the sermon. First heard of the news, and we were just talking to Sharon. How to announce it and how to share that. And I told Sharon, I says, I said, just keep the opportunity on the mission something so that if you hear it any other way, you keep asking her to repeat and the story will try to be the same over and over again. I plan, let me just ask that. Let's spend a moment quietly to pray. Let's not make this. Life. We thank you for all that you have placed before us. And we want to especially remember Sharon as she prepares herself for the surgery. We thank you for the early discovery and we continue to come this dear sister into your hands as she meets with the doctor, as she discusses, we will also guide the hands of the doctors. Lord, I remember the many missionaries who, are, who have just returned home from us and then who are going back into the journey into your hands and we ask for gentle mercies. This I pray for once in One day a friend of mine, the senior partner of the company, took some time off to visit his new home in Shanghai and his team prepared, prepared, got this new place and it was a very hot summer day. If you've ever been to Shanghai sometime in the summer, it's, it's 39 degrees Celsius and what makes it worse is that it's 90 plus percent humidity. It was unbearable. He was going there to the new home and then as he passed by, he saw a fruit store selling watermelon. He thought, wow, it would be nice on this hot day to buy some and carry it up to the to his place and then pass it to the construction workers to eat. They bought, you know, it's a good gesture and it's such a hot day. And then he shared this with me and says, uh, yo, you should see their faces as they eat the juicy watermelon. And the juice were dripping out of their mouth and then they were looking at me and they were thanking me. I, I could, I could Kind of picture that a little. And they settled whatever they need to do, and then he returned back to his office. And upon returning, he also had some watermelon. This time he thought of his uh, staff, and he carried it off, and he arrived at his office, and he gave it to the tea lady to cut, and the tea lady served. And during lunchtime, one of the one of the staff was sharing about the watermelon and this this partner was hearing this friend of mine and, it, and and this was one of those statements that came up is i've taken better watermelon than this <laughs> so staff didn't know it came from my partner it came from the boss so he just sat there very quietly and then uh, and then he was just sharing you know saying it's very funny it's the same watermelon 
same weather condition, different groups of people eating the watermelon, and it is very different conclusion. One was profusely thanking me. Didn't tell me how unsweet it was, but certainly how juicy it was. And then the other group, eating the same watermelon from the same fruit store, had so many comments to say. So one word that keeps coming back to me as I, as I reflect upon this is the word gratitude. How to define this word gratitude? And this is one of the phrases I have come across and I, I thought it's interesting to put a formula to it. You know? And if you, if you look at that, it's experience of how things are divided over the, your expectation. And, and so this, this experience kind of tells you, if you refer to my friend's uh, thoughts, you know, um, he was bringing the watermelon to this group of uh, construction workers. They were certainly not expecting, they had very low expectation. They, they didn't think that the watermelon would arrive, no one would bring to them. And so they added, and it was, they were thirsty, it was a hot day, boy, it was a good watermelon. So if you divide it, expectation low, gratitude very high, or I mean, experience very high, gratitude very high. Yeah, so you look at it, it says, um, quite interesting. Now, if you look at this, the other group of people looking at it in the, in the office, was expectation high? No, there wasn't a very high expectation. Was the experience exciting? No, it was a very low experience. So, gratitude is low. What happened? I think one of the things that caused me to think about is the workers were working and they really needed something to drink, eat. And then the other workers had water and they were in an aircon room and the watermelon somehow didn't taste so sweet. So I, I looked at it and that's how sometimes we are when we look at circumstances. And uh, this has caused me to look and ask another interesting question. What, are the, what is the opposite of, or rather the flip side of gratitude? I thought one interesting, one interesting word that came out as I searched is the word suffering. How do you define suffering? So, I have another formula to share with you. It's the same one, but you flip it the other side. You know, the expectation over the experience. Someone once said, suffering occurs when your ideas about how things ought to be don't match up with how they really are. And this kind of resonated, and as I thought about it, I reflected again on another experience I had. Some years ago when I was in, in Taiwan, uh, doing some work, and there was this friend of mine who's an HR manager in this company. And uh, she came to me and she, uh, just before the class starts, and she said to me, and says, you, you have some time. Say, you have some time. I said, I have for about an hour during lunch time. She says, can I talk with you? And I kind of sense that it must be something that is deep in her mind. She wanted to discuss and wanted to ask me about. So during the lunch break, she came and she sat down there. And I said, is there something in your mind? And she relayed to me her, her journey of her father dying. Father is a doctor, 
and dying of stomach cancer. And she saw how the cancer slowly add up to the father and the pain. And she was not satisfied with the answer that she had of her own faith. She's a very devout Buddhist and we both talked before. And she was just not satisfied with the answers of how to handle the suffering. This triggered in many ways a very quiet search for meaning in the midst of her adversity. She, she read and she talked to the priests. She also talked to the different groups of people, read some books. And she sat down and said, saying, what is the Christian view of suffering? And she would like to hear my perspective. And in that 45 minutes, we, we share a little, we talk. And at the end of it, just towards the end of the lunch, and she, she looked at me and she says, you know, as far as I can see, and I've also read some Christian books, and this quietly, I've also started to go to church following the younger daughter. And she shared this with me. She says, the, the Christian approach to suffering makes the most sense. And not only that, it brought the greatest comfort to me as I wrestled with my father's illness, as I also wrestled with my own pain. Not long after that, that conversation, some weeks later, she, she kind of texted me and she shared with me, saying, just to let you know, I'm now attending faithfully a Presbyterian church, just in Taipei, and I'm baptized. Husband is not yet with me. I asked her, what touched you most in this journey that you took? And she shared with me this, Christ's death touched her life, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus gave much hope. Not only that, it brought much comfort. And this resurrection reveals the victory over death and the victory over suffering. And for her, God reigns through the darkest period of history. You know, the Bible has have many, many stories of such kind of conclusion or point. Today, I want to draw two stories for you. The story of the Old Testament, the story of Joseph, and then in the New Testament, the story of the Antioch Church. As you know that Joseph was a young man, a young boy, a teenager in the late teens. He was sold to slavery by the brothers, and he was brought to Egypt, and he suffered for more than 10 years, first in the house of Potiphar as a servant, and then he was then thrown to the prison, and then in the prison, he met these two persons, who were officials, and then the dream of the Pharaoh came, and he had a chance to share with the Pharaoh, from suddenly, imagine, the prisoner in the most high secure prison, the next day he came, the second man of whole of Egypt. It's an interesting story. He was 30 years old when he entered the service of the Pharaoh, and in the next seven years of good harvest, two sons were born to him. One of them was Manasseh, and the name is, It is because God has made me forget all my troubles and all my father's household. It's quite interesting. This young man, as I am, as I often thought about his life, out of that great suffering, and now elevated to be such a high position, could at any one time return back home 
and told the father. The son's birth, the first son birth, revealed the pain and the suffering he had all these years. And he showed that he wanted to forget a part of his history. And the second son was born. He called it Ephraim. And it was because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Unknown to him. And many times I, I also wonder how he looked at the earlier dreams he had when he was a young man. That the brothers would bow to him and the father and mother would bow to him. That's how he interpreted the dream. And so, circumstances led the brothers to go to Egypt and to buy grain. And it's during the second year, or the ending of the second year of Daniel. And the story unfolds that it comes to a point where Joseph understood how the brother felt, the pain he had. And when he finally was reconciled to the brothers, this was a very interesting verse. Genesis 45 verse 4 to 8. Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When he had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourself for selling me here. Let me pause here. I think he was very angry with the brothers for selling him there. And I, I believe this prevented him from going back. But as he reflected when the brothers came, something changed. And this is it. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there had been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. And this is interesting. Verse 7. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So that it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, ruler of Egypt. What an interesting conclusion. It was reconciled with the family, and you thought the story would have ended there. Story didn't end. They thought the father died, the brothers really wasn't very sure that Joseph would kept and would treat them well. And he sent word to Joseph to forgive them on the account of the father. And then came this very interesting second one where Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intend to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. So then do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly and believe all of life is good. And sometimes I ask a friend of mine, they say, was the ten over years of Joseph in the house of Bobby in the prison good? And some friends of mine would look at me and say, how can he be good? I say he can only be good because you look at it from a historical span of time. How God would have worked that through. And you see this again in another passage in Acts chapter 11, verse 19 to 24. It talks about an incident that happened in the book of Acts about the martyrdom of Stephen. 
And then as a result of that, something happened. Verse 19, now those who have been scattered by the, pers by the persecution that broke out when Stephan was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. It's very interesting to note that the first church, the Gentile church, was formed because Stephen died. And out of that, the believers were forced to leave Jerusalem and scattered to the outer parts to escape the persecution. And as a result of that, wherever they were sent or they were running away, they were sharing the faith. And some took it for the first time to share to the Gentiles. And from there came the first Gentile church in Antioch. Sometimes it's quite funny, you look at this, then the first martyr recorded for us, Stephen. And we know that the person responsible for that was Paul or Saul at that time. And then the church was growing in large numbers. And so much so that they had to send Barnabas to look at the Antioch church. What is happening? And, and, and Barnabas immediately went to Tarsus to call Saul to come. So if you look at it, it, sometimes life is very interesting and strange. The one who persecute, and because of his persecution, that he has wrought, scattered the church. And as a result of that, the church, the first Gentile church was formed, and he was one of the early leaders at Paul. I also look at my own life in the years of mission. I left the church to go to the mission field in 1998. I pastor showed the picture last Sunday. I've not seen it for such a long time, and it brought back very interesting memories to me. The first two years was just 1998-1999, I was just learning Filipino. And there were many times I really wanted to take my Filipino home and throw at my teacher. <laughs> uh, I, I, I just find it so difficult, you know, the, the way the language is constructed, it's, it's really challenging. And how the word conjugate itself, you know, built on it. And uh, so I had two years of that. Then Care Channels started at the beginning of 2000. And when it started, something else happened which is very painful and very challenging at that time. I am not, I don't know whether I mentioned to you, the first two years of Care Channels was once you start work among the poor, many things can happen. One of the things that happened was a series of letters over a period of two years were written. The first letter went to the immigration, accusing us of being drug trafficking, major drug trafficking. So we were called up by the immigration. So I've never been called up by, by authority. I have to sit down and I have to sit and explain to them. And I discovered something very interesting as I, as I met with them. And uh, the first thing was the officer asked me, he said, what kind of visa do you have? So I pulled out my passport and I showed. And I could see in his face, his, when he saw my visa, he accorded me even with greater respect because that was the highest visa that was given. It's called an SIRB. It's a special investor residence visa. So 
I didn't read it as a mystery. I put in some money. And that visa granted me very interesting status. And the moment I saw his face change, I remembered how Paul would sometimes flip up his Roman citizenship. So I thought, okay, that's something very interesting. <laughs> and so he accorded me and he'd hear my story. Next to me was my elder and pastor from the church that we worship in. Explain and he looked at me and said, Look at my face. Then he looked at me and said, I don't think you are that kind of category of a major drug trafficker. So he says, Go to a lawyer, send me an affidavit, and the case is closed. And then three months later, another letter came from NDI, National Bureau of Investigation of Criminal So this would go on, and every three months I had a very interesting visit. And uh, so after about two or three visits, the, the fourth one was the most interesting. It was the Department of Social Welfare. And there was a, uh, there was a letter sent to them that I had trafficking children. You know, I was smuggling children and I was hiding them. And so the search warrant came to the office. And uh, you know when they serve it, uh, everyone has to leave and they went into the office. They were knocking on every wall thinking there was a trap door somewhere. And so that lasted for about 45 minutes to an hour and there was, again there was nothing. And so they didn't think there was any children. And so this continued for two years. And then it stopped. Because all the, I've seen every possible department that can be, I, I don't think they have to, they can repeat the story anymore. That brought me to a point, in, in the midst of all of these, the elders and leaders were aware and there was there was a moment where it was very tense and uh, he was asked whether we would come home or we would not come home and I, I still remember that uh, during the midst of it uh, one day Chen came back from shopping buying the groceries and uh, so in the evening when I came back I, I, I saw she bought a book it was a street directory of Kazon uh, City, Manila City, and it was a much bigger uh, map, street map, and it was actually quite nice because it shows the direction, whether it's a one-way street, whether it was two-way street. And so I looked at my wife and said, you know, China, we, we already have a street map. And she looked at me, she turned and she says, I don't know about you, I'm staying. So the street map was a way of telling me. I was thinking whether to stay or not with the two kids, with my wife. And she looked at me and she says, the new street directory is a very good one. It will show us where to go around Metro Manila. And I'm staying. That gave me a lot of encouragement to dare to take a step. And we continue as we labor. And today, uh, yesterday was the 20th year. And in the update, when I look back, and when I, when I see it, I just stare at it and I, and I say, we have nearly 800 over conversions. Nearly 700 baptisms that we could see happening in the field. At the end of my seventh year, I, I was packing my bag, I was returning back home. And this same elder pastor 
and also my supervisor, you know, had a degree with me. We, we, we talked, we spent quite a bit of time. And he asked me an interesting question. Say, what is your happiest time in the Philippines? And I had a lot of time after that, of these two years, and it went on to the fifth year, sixth year, seventh year. At the end of it, I, I was packing home and, and I shared that with him and said, my happiest year and the best years of my life is the third year and the fourth year. He's the only one who has been with me to every single department, every letter that was served. And he looked at me and, and he has this surprise look at me and says, what? I said, I was with you every time. And every time after each of these meetings, we would drive back and we would be silent. I don't know what to say. I also don't know how to say. And so this whole two years was just, every incident was like that. And he says, why was it so memorable and happiest time of your life? And I said to him, I said, it is because it is the two years that shaped me and touched a point in my life that I believe this particular poem will give you a light to it. There was a poem written by uh, a lady, Martha Nicholson, and she said this, I stood a mendicant of God and before his royal throne and begged him for one priceless gift which I would call my own. I took the gift from his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange, hurtful gift which thou hast given me. He said, my child, I gave good gifts and gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. This couple, uh, my supervisor and his wife, looked at me and he says, if I were you, I would have left in the beats. And then I sometimes look at them and I laugh at them and he says, if I had left, imagine. I would have seen what I see today. Let me invite the worshiping to come. And in the midst of preparing them, I come, come across this song that you sang. When I look upon your face, when I gaze into your eyes, I remember what you could have done. And I say yes. When I think about the cross, I see your blood poured out, I remember what you have done. I say yes. Yes to leaving everything behind. Yes to forsaking every want and right. Yes to living out the sums of your desire. I say yes. Let me rise. We say this together. May, may these words of song encourage you as it has.